Hello, everyone, and welcome to All Shall Be Well. I'm Anne Boyd, host of All Shall Be Well, a podcast by InterVarsity's Women in the Academy and Professions. We're here to support women in their God-given callings into the university and beyond. So, if you're a graduate student or a faculty member, an administrator or a student in professional school, a scholar in between jobs, or simply a person who supports women in the academic world, then this podcast is for you. Today, we'll be getting to know Caitlin Shess, theology student and author of The Liturgy of Politics, Spiritual Formation for the Sake of Our Neighbor. This book was released about a year ago and delves into some of the most engaging questions of our times. Why do Christians have such differing views on politics? What does God have to say about political issues? And how do politics impact our personal and collective spiritual formation? Caitlin shares about the genesis of this book, the way her studies at Liberty University set the stage for exploring new ideas, and her recent experiences as a new student at Duke Divinity School. And for fans of the Holy Post podcast, we hear some fun details about how Caitlin got connected with her role there, too. It's a lovely conversation, and I think you'll enjoy it. So let me tell you a bit more about Caitlin. Caitlin Shess is a writer, speaker, and self-proclaimed theology nerd. She is a Ph.D. student at Duke Divinity School studying political theology, ethics, and biblical interpretation. She has a THM in Systematic Theology from Dallas Theological Seminary and has written about theology, politics, and culture at places like Christianity Today, The New York Times, and Christ in Pop Culture. This conversation is hosted by Karen Heiss-Guzman, the Director of Women in the Academy and Professions. So let's dive right in. We're so glad you're here with us. Caitlin, welcome to All Shall Be Well. It is such a pleasure to have you on our program and to have this conversation with you today. I assume that a number of our listeners will know who you are, but there probably are a number who don't. So would you tell us what you're doing right now and kind of the road that got you to to where you're sitting today and, and the things that you're doing? Yeah, yeah. So I just started this semester a uh, doctoral program at Duke Divinity School. I am studying uh, political theology and theological interpretation of scripture. I'm hoping eventually to do something with the Old Testament prophets and the use of uh, the Old Testament prophets in political theology. I graduated this last May with a THM from Dallas Theological Seminary. And so I didn't anticipate being either of those places <laughs> ever at all. Um, I went to college thinking I was going to go to law school and then made what felt like a really last minute decision at the end of college to go to seminary instead. And when I made that decision, I thought, I have no idea why I'm going or what I'm going to do, or I just knew I really wanted to study scripture. And I had grown up in the church, but I felt like I had a lot of questions. I was coming fresh off of graduating from Liberty University, where I had a lot of questions about politics and theology. And I graduated in 2016. So it was really the height of Liberty's you know, issues with political stuff and very national coverage of liberties, uh, issues with political stuff. And so went into seminary with that, went into seminary with the 2016 election happening and got really interested in questions of politics and faith. Um, and still didn't think I would, didn't think at all I would keep going with school. I remember my first semester professor saying, so he gave us this lovely little speech about, you know, if you, it, it could be better for your soul for you to get a B or a C in a class, you know, keep in mind all your other obligations. And then he made a note at the end about, but I know some of you are going to continue with school. So you obviously do have to care about your grades. And I remember sitting there that first day thinking, oh, thank goodness, I am not one of those people because I can just not care about my grades now. I'm not, doing, there's no way I'm going to do any more school after this. And then after a year of seminary and writing my first real systematic theology research paper, I just really found a passion for doing research and a desire to teach and so started looking into programs a couple of years ago and never in a million years thought I would be in this really fantastic program at Duke where I get to do a chunk of coursework in political science and the rest in the divinity school and get to work with some really incredible people. But I, I just feel so thankful to be here. 
That's great. So you said law school was sort of your original uh, mm -hmm. thought and the path you're on now will more than likely take you to a very different place. Do you, do you have, I mean, knowing that things could change right in the months and the years ahead, but I'm curious, do you, do you have a sense of what your end goal is at this point or where God might be, you know, sending you what direction or yeah, I mean, I would really on the kind of like job part, which is like part of the question, right? Is like, how sure, would you like sure. to like make the money that you need <laughs> to live? I would really love to be teaching theology at a Christian kind of college or university. But really, kind of beyond that, part of my interest in some of the programs I was looking into was whatever I'm doing kind of like for a day job, I will certainly still be involved in, I think, the broader conversation that Christians are having about political theology mm -hmm. and the way that our churches are interacting with questions of politics. And, and so I really wanted, it was kind of nice people, you know, especially right now, I don't know how long this has been happening where people are applying to PhD programs and some people are supportive, but a lot of people are like, don't do it. There's no jobs. Like your life is going to be horrible, you know? And it was nice to kind of go, yeah, I want to be realistic about career choices and what I'm doing, but also the contemplation of God is an inherent good. And I have some questions I'm not done you know, asking mm -hmm. and trying to find mm -hmm. answers to. And I've already seen in just my first couple of months, the ways that the stuff that I get to, I have the space and time to do really deep research on things that I want to be a gift to the church. So whatever that looks like, continuing to write popularly or speak, those kinds of things, that's really, regardless of other questions that will be sure. involved. Yeah. So you finished up seminary in May mm -hmm. and then did you have a, did you have graduation? Did you we did. We had a we had a mostly normal graduation. Obviously, masks and all of that kind of stuff. Sure. But it was it was. I was really thankful for how mostly yeah. normal yeah. it was. Okay, yeah. so you had a mostly normal graduation ceremony, and then you packed up all your earthly belongings and you <laughs> drove across the country, moved into a new place, planted yourself in a new community, and then started this program at Duke, right? So mm -hmm. how was all of that? Um, <laughs> what's, what's been exciting? What's been challenging? Yeah, it's funny, because when I decided on the program, right, I applied to a few programs, and then got acceptances and was like trying to figure out what to do and was weighing what was maybe more comfortable, you know, Duke was definitely the least familiar option to me of some other options. And so I made the decision in March of, okay, I'm going to do this really honestly, the scariest option of the options that I have is this one, because it's a place I'm not familiar with both geographically and the school. And, you know, I have friends in some other programs, but I don't know anyone here. Like, it'll just be a really different place. Made that decision in March. And then by the time I was hitting the beginning of summer and was starting to actually think about moving here, COVID was really changing. Like it was a yes. much different kind of situation. And so I wasn't thinking, I mean, maybe I was, I was kind of thinking it would be mostly normal <laughs> by the fall, you know, Duke had gotten rid of its mask mandate, Durham had opened up, like it just kind of was like, okay, maybe everything will be kind of normal. And I moved here beginning of August. And so it was like the first two days before I left, I was like packing up this big moving truck was when Delta was changing. And all of a sudden it was like, no, we're putting back all the restrictions. Everything's kind of scary again. And so I think I didn't even really realized at the time how scary those first couple weeks here were. I think on one hand, it was scary because things were changing pretty quickly with COVID. And I was starting to worry, like, am I, did I move across the country? And then I'm going to do all my classes online right, <laughs> and everything's right, going to be right. terrible. And, you know, and, and also just kind of socially, it was like, oh, even if I go to class in person, like, am I going to have friends? Am I going to have a life here? Or is it just like, we have to wait another year or two <laughs> before, yeah. you know, things are normal. And, and I also think I had just underestimated how much of a transition moving to a new place was. Mm. I am a military kid, so I grew up moving all over the place, but I had lived in Dallas for five years and I was real, that's, you know, my entire adult life after college, it was really comfortable and normal there. And I had a really strong community. And so I think I also, I just kind of thought of myself as so independent and resilient. And I was like, it's fine. Like it didn't, it didn't scare me at all beforehand. I didn't think like, oh, I'm doing this scary thing. But then I got here, all of that is actually very real. It is hard and scary and COVID and all that kind of stuff. And, and yet like looking back now, even just a couple months in, I am so just 
overwhelmingly thankful for the way God has provided. I mean, I, I think the theme of all of this has been other women doctoral students being the kindest, most supportive, amazing people. I mean, I was here for two days and I get like a cold message from someone I've never met who is like way farther ahead of me in the program who was just like, hey, there's a bunch of us who are all single and your age, we're all in this program. We do a lot of stuff together. Do you wanna come to church with us? Do you wanna come over to my house next week? Do you wanna, you know, just we're so incredibly welcoming and kind. Yeah. And two of the other women who are in my cohort starting with me did their master's at Duke and are familiar and literally like took me on a tour of campus and like answered all of my questions and showed me where to park. And so it's just, it's been not only really sweet to receive all of this from Mm -hmm. these people, it's been really sweet to think like, this is the train that I want to continue. Like, how can I be on the lookout as they were on the lookout for me of what I can do for other women, especially because that was a whole other added element of that, especially all of us who are single kind of came here completely by ourselves and don't have a you know network here. It's been so, it's been so lovely to just feel like even before the academic questions where I was kind of worried about competition, you know, and comparison mm-hmm. and all of the mm-hmm. stuff that happens, especially with women in kind of spaces like this to just be like, Oh, before we're even in class, you're just being so open-handed with the things you have, the connections you have, you know, questions I don't even know to ask. I, people have just been so incredibly kind. That's great. That's, yeah, that's lovely. And definitely, I'm sure feels like a provision or a gift, right? Yeah, From the yeah. Lord to, to you and that. That's great. Well, let's shift gears a little bit. You wrote the Liturgy of Politics, Spiritual Formation for the Sake of Our Neighbor. And that mm-hmm. came out just over a year ago. I think it was yeah. September of 2020. And you challenge readers to see the way that they think about and then engage or disengage in the world, politically or otherwise, as vitally connected to the ways they've been formed or not formed spiritually. Mm -hmm. And this is directly related uh, to a number of theological deficiencies uh, in our churches. Can you say something first about this outward facing aspect to our spiritual formation? Yeah. You know, when I was in seminary, there was such kind of like a resurgence or a renaissance of interest in spiritual formation. Like people were talking about it more often. I feel like at an evangelical seminary, especially there was an interest in introducing people to the larger tradition of spiritual formation, of thinking about spiritual disciplines, of thinking more about habits and practices in the church and how they form us. And yet one of the kind of bents that that can have is a really inward bent of, I practice certain disciplines or I engage in certain practices because of what it's doing to me thoroughly internally. And that's a definite part of it that's really important. But I was like learning all of this stuff in classes, reading all of this really rich stuff about spiritual formation, while also the 2016 election was happening that semester, my first semester in seminary. I was in the coffee shop on campus having conversations with other students who were going to be pastors or counselors or teachers, and they were heartbroken over what was happening in their churches and in their communities when it came to politics, how it had captivated people's hearts, and yet we didn't see a connection there. We didn't really have a conversation that bridged this spiritual formation conversation and this political conversation. And there's a whole other web of things that like are involved in that when it comes to the way that our political practices can be spiritually formative. But there was this other part that I kept noticing of we needed spiritual practices that we understood as being outward oriented. And I, as much as I read the history, I I took a class on spiritual formation throughout history. So much of it was oriented to how do we form a people in such a way that they act this kind of way in their communities, not just that they feel a certain Mm -hmm. way internally or that it does something to them spiritually, which it does, but that it changes how they live. I I remember in this class on history of spiritual formation, we were talking about the early church burying people who didn't have the financial resources to be buried, whose bodies were left out in the open. And someone made a comment about like, well, do you think they had to come up with like a body burying committee? Like he's imagining in his church, like, what would we do? We would find someone to set this up. We would have a sign-up sheet. You would be on the committee and something. And they probably did have like logistical things involved, but we were saying that if in our churches, this isn't a problem in our communities that people are are not being buried, but if it was, our response would be make a committee. Like we'll get a group of people together and we'll figure out the logistics. And we might not think about 
what needed to happen for people spiritually for that kind of response outwardly to be possible for us to see Mm. a need for us to respond to it and for us not to get burnt out responding to it like what would need to happen in our communities if we didn't just ask what committee needs to be formed but what needs to change in our worship in our spiritual disciplines and our practices that make us the kind of people that can respond to needs that kind of way and that really was like a shift for me in thinking not only do I want to say, okay, here are problems I see in the world. What kind of spiritual disciplines do I need to respond to those problems? But I first want to say what spiritual disciplines and habits and practices of the church that have already been existing for a really long time were already intended to move me away from an inward focus and towards my Mm -hmm. community. And yet I've actually been applying them or twisting them or corrupting them so that they are inward focused because that's the culture that I'm in and the kind of presuppositions I have. And that was really... I feel like when I talk to people about the book now, one of the first things they usually say is just that outward orientation of things mm-hmm. because they were so formed in a church that had a real focus on the inward, which is again, important. And if maybe I was in a different culture at a different time, I would need to say, hey, we do need to look inward. We don't need to just be fully looking outward. But in the churches that I'm in, it's definitely the other direction. Sure. It seems that there's this combination of sort of the fruit of the spirit, but for mm-hmm. the point of loving my neighbor, right? Yeah, and if it yeah. just if it just stops with the fruit of the spirit being uh, developed in my character, for for whose sake? Um, yes, yes, mine. <laughs> and then spiritual formation becomes very self centered, right? Yeah. Um, yeah. One of the things that I really appreciated was actually toward the end of the book, where you talk about our understanding of the coming kingdom. And how that affects the ways we we do or the ways we don't invest in the world today. Can you say a bit about that, particularly what maybe what corrective you might suggest to our eschatological understanding that would encourage us to invest in the flourishing of creation today? Yeah. Um, yeah. Yeah, it's it's funny. One of the first classes, again, that I took in seminary, and then I ended up grading for this class for like years. So I got to hear the same lectures, like, you know, so many different times. Sure. And it's from a professor who his big emphasis in this class was to kind of start off the class changing how people think about their eschatology, because he knows at a place like DTS, a lot of the people that are coming in not only hold to a premillennial dispensational eschatology, but they most, for the most part, have had that wedded pretty strongly to a certain kind of political theology. And so trying to kind of undo some of that, maybe undo some of the ways that in a church, it especially could get, you know, sort of distorted over time, where maybe the theology had some origin that was a little bit better, but then it over time kind of gets distorted even more, sure. kind of had to unlearn some things. Mm-hmm. And so he started out this class every semester with this description of not only creation, he actually started with, with new creation and revelation 21 and 22, and then the parallels with Genesis one and two creation and then new creation and kind of said, is this the framework with which we are thinking about what we're doing in between these two descriptions, or are we focusing just entirely on this kind of future element, this coming judgment, especially like the scarier middle (laughs) chapters of revelation, or do we have a more holistic sense of what we're doing in the world? And it was such a helpful, I remember every semester watching the faces of students just be kind of shocked. Like no one had ever told them they had just learned this, like I pray a prayer and then I go to heaven when I die. (laughs) And that's not only what happened with me, but that's the message I have to give everyone else. And this really robust description of the new Jerusalem and what that is supposed to do to a community to have to have that be the image of the coming kingdom is not just kind of ethereal or immaterial, but a specific structured community where people are flourishing. They're using the good gifts that God has given mm-hmm. and applying their own human creativity to it. They're continuing to work to fulfill the commission that God gave in Genesis, but under conditions that are no longer distorted by sin. That was so that was the start of my seminary career was just this kind of reorienting of my thinking. And it was so helpful. And then the further along I went in seminary, the more I saw how people who couldn't even articulate maybe what their eschatology was had still been shaped by this idea that ultimately we're just sort of waiting to be plucked out of here or for me to die and go to heaven if Jesus doesn't come back yet. And and I'm just sort of doing 
mostly meaningless things until then. And I remember the maybe third or fourth time I was grading for this class, listening to the same lecture I've heard a thousand times. I was also reading through Isaiah for a different class and getting to the passage where it talks about the kings of the nations bringing their good gifts into the new Jerusalem and just thinking, wow, I, I, there's not only this continuity that I had sort of missed of this commission from beginning to end, there's not even just a sense in which the things I'm doing now are sort of glimpses or practice for eternity. They're both of those things. And that's beautiful enough, but there actually is a sense in which by the power of the Holy spirit, the works of justice and redemption and reconciliation that I participate in on earth could be carried into eternity. And am I taking seriously enough what it means to be able to do that now for this stuff, not to be meaningless. It still is marred by my own mixed motives, my own sin. It's still contingent. There's a certain goodness about not feeling like everything I do now has eternal import and I can justify, you know, any kind of terrible means to get to an end. But there's also something really missing when I just sort of think that nothing I'm doing now matters. And politically, Mm -hmm. a lot of evangelicals wedded that to an account of politics that was really thoroughly pessimistic, that there's so little good we can do because of sin. And there's so little that matters because we're waiting to be raptured out of here that really all we can kind of do politically is just stop people from hurting each other. And our political imagination is pretty stunted and malnourished. And we end up just kind of justifying really bad stuff politically because our our goals are really small and we kind of think that we can justify anything because this is all that's really left for us to do. And once I was able to see the connections between like the way that I grew up and the things that I learned in churches, sometimes not even it wasn't something I was instructed. There wasn't a class that taught me this, but you know, you pick up things over time, Sure. connecting that with what I was seeing politically in that moment, the fruits of that to a really extreme level was really helpful. And I think one of those correctives is, is telling that story. I watched it in the faces of these students when they, before we even got into some specifics of what this class was, it was like, do we know this narrative? Do we know this story? And watching a professor that they really trusted walk through the scripture on it and not come in and kind of say, here's why you should care about fighting for justice, you know, and reconciliation in the world. But someone saying, here's this whole narrative. You've read all these passages before, but have you thought about what this means for our entire Mm -hmm. lives in the world? I watched that be so powerful. And then I read all of their papers at the end of every semester and watched how many of them, you know, some of the other stuff in the class didn't always stick or they didn't always remember, but that kind of beginning was so significant. And it really ended up shaping how I wrote the book and then how I've talked about it since then. It's been like, that's just, that's a powerful place to start. I tend to do a general overview of the scriptural story of God's people oriented to the flourishing of their communities with all ages of people before I get into the political questions, because they're not going to trust me until it's, here's this story that we all already have some kind of agreement with some authority, give some authority to, and here's how maybe we've misunderstood it over time. Sure. That's great. That's great. Well, based on my limited observation, I'll say, the institutions you've been a part of have not really produced alumni who think and live the ways that you're suggesting. So, Caitlin, to be frank, <laughs> how, yeah. how did Liberty and Dallas Seminary produce someone with your understanding of these things you have pointed to a couple of courses so it sounds like there have been some professors along the way that have been helpful in that did you feel like a fish out of water did you feel (laughs) like you yourself were on a journey maybe did you have many kindred spirits (laughs) Mm. along the way so yeah yeah I think I think the two were pretty different liberty I feel like on one hand there might be more alumni than people realize who it was a really formative experience and not the way Liberty intended it to be (laughs) for them, where we really saw a kind of extreme version of what was happening in Christian institutions all over the country. I had friends who went to Christian universities or colleges that weren't as extreme as Liberty, Mm -hmm. who kind of, it took them longer to see some of the problems in our political engagement because it wasn't so extreme, you know, Um, there's a Flannery O'Connor quote people always use about, you know, needing to draw large and startling figures for the blind and to shout for the nearly deaf. And I think there's something about liberty that was that for some of us who grew up in evangelical spaces, had sort of a set of assumptions about 
what it meant to be a Christian in the political sphere and could have just kind of continued on a path not too different from that for a, a bit longer, I think, if we hadn't been in such an environment that just was shocking. It was really in your face. And I also had some mentors and some professors there who were fantastic. Karen Swallow Pryor, mm-hmm. like, got me started writing. She was just, I gravitated toward her class, even though I was not an English major, because I just thought she's doing something thoughtful publicly mm-hmm. and I want to learn how to do that. And I'm so thankful for her. And then at DTS, it really was, there were quite a few professors that were mentors to me who helped me see things, including professors who, you know, gave me books that the school wouldn't approve of or that they themselves didn't agree with, you know, but I just was like, Hey, I'm in this class. I remember going to a professor once I was in a class on revelation and I thought I, I need to read some other things. (laughs) Like Mm -hmm, I need some mm -hmm. help. Um, we're kind of reading in a pretty narrow range here. I need some help and really openly just gave me a bunch of stuff that ended up changing my mind in ways that wasn't how his mind, you know, was set on things, but was, you know, free to do that. And I also think I, in retrospect, you know, I've had some friends from college or from, you know, church and in high school who went to seminary or divinity school at some places that are very, very different from DTS and very different from how we grew up. And they've been really good for them in some ways, but I'm really thankful that I went to a school that fit very strongly, the kind of theology that I grew up with and gave me a space to both change my mind about a lot of things. I changed my Mm -hmm. mind about so many things in seminary, but also I couldn't really leave there with a caricature of some of the things that I decided I no longer believed because I had professors that, I mean, I remember the professor who taught my eschatology class. I finished that class. He sent me a lovely email. was just like, I'm so sorry. You can never teach here now (laughs) because you've changed your mind so much, you know, about all these things, but, but was so kind about it. And I remember, and I, I told him multiple times after this, I said, I am so thankful that while I don't agree with where you were at anymore, I've, I've heard not only your theological reasons, but your heart behind the positions you hold. Sure. And I have so much respect for you and for where you've come to. And I'm thankful that I feel that way. I think if I had I'd gone the trajectory of some of my friends who went somewhere very different, it would have been easier to just kind of reject on face a lot of the stuff I grew up with yes. and have a real kind of caricaturized version of it. Whereas what I learned in some churches was kind of sometimes the caricature. It was kind of the, you know, the rapture caricature, the kind of dispensational caricature. But then I met professors at DTS who I was like, oh, you're so thoughtful. You're way smarter than I ever will be. And I can't kind of leave here just sort of shaking my head at everything I grew up with. I have to grapple with the fact that you're really thoughtful and wise and and I have a lot of respect for you. That's great. Yeah. I'm grateful to hear that you felt like you had the space to disagree or to, like you said, read more widely yeah. in some areas and and come to your own conclusions. Um, yeah. So do you have a favorite class from your mm. time at Dallas? What was, I'm curious what your favorite class was. You can have two, you don't have to just have one. <laughs> well, good. I mean, I do think one of my favorite classes that I already mentioned was this. Um, I took a class called spiritual formation and contemporary culture. I think I, I didn't think I said the name earlier, but I was referencing it. The same professor who I had a ton of times who I loved that class. It was parallel with this spiritual formation across history class. You t- I took one, one semester and then the other the next. Okay. And it was just, not only was it a super like fantastic professor, fantastic class, very diverse group and like people that became really close to me, but it also, the way the class was structured, we went through all these different units on like race and gender and sexuality and, you know, economy and, you know, all these different kind of technology. And we were supposed to do a politics segment at the end. And then of course, because this happens with professors all the time, like we didn't get to a huge chunk of stuff at the end we were supposed to get to. So we didn't get to the politics stuff. And so I wrote my whole final paper about how the whole class, I went through all the other segments would have been better if we had had some language to talk about the political element and all of these things which was kind of like second semester gutsy move to be like, professor, you were wrong about all all of this. And he was so kind and not only responded to my like criticism of his class with, well, let's do an independent study. Let's like figure out how you can read all the stuff you want to read, but really shaped a lot of the rest of my seminary time and, and helped me. I mean, that research ended up being what I wrote the book on. And so it was such a like sweet moment again, that I want to remember if I ever get the honor of, of teaching people of going wow, he could have just been annoyed that I was unhappy with the class. And instead it was, 
oh, a student is passionate about something, like let's find a way to, to get her opportunities to keep researching it and to support. I mean, when I was wrestling with, I'm young and you know just getting started, should I, should I even write this book? To have someone say, I've been watching you do the work and I actually really have a lot of you know faith mm-hmm. in you. It's like, that's, that's the kind of stuff that, that means so much to students. Yeah, yeah absolutely. Well, you have this little side gig going, if I can call it that, right, <laughs> on the Holy Post podcast. As I, do, you, do you call yourself a commentator? What, what does... I don't know. That's a good uh, word. I, was, I, like I was wondering how you, re, how you refer to yourself and your engagement there. So for our listeners who aren't familiar with the Holy Post, it's mm-hmm. a podcast that's hosted by Phil Vischer and Sky Jatani. Mm-hmm. And uh, the first part of the podcast is usually this kind of round table conversation around current events. And sometimes that's using, that's being generous, calling it current yeah. mm-hmm. events, some of the things that Phil <laughs> comes up with to talk about, right? And then yes. the second part of the podcast is usually an interview that mm-hmm. Sky does, um, sometimes, uh, you know, others. Um, but I'm, how, how did that come about? How did you end up <laughs> at, the, at the Holy Post? <laughs> Yeah, so I I don't totally know. We can't no one can know what Phil is doing or what he's thinking, but um I did an interview for my book last year. Um okay. and when I finished, we'd finished recording because that was a weird one that Phil was doing, so he interviewed me. And then after we finished recording, he said, "You know, a lot of authors are not also good talkers." But you're a really good talker. Do you want to keep doing this sometimes? <laughs> And I thought it would just be really occasional. And then it really morphed into a lot more. And I've started doing a bunch more interviews. I'm doing a, a, a bunch this week. And those are really okay. fun too. It's like been fun for me to, as both like a woman and in an academic space, as opposed to where they're at, to be like, here are the sure. things that I think we should be talking about too, yeah. has been really, has been really fun. So that, that, yeah, getting involved with the Holy Post was a total surprise, I think to them and to me. And it was... <laughs> It's been just like a real joy of the last year. That's great. Are there any conversations that you've had along the way that stand out in your mind that were particularly either aha moments for you or that you feel like were really significant, uh, Mm. either in terms of your own thoughts and working through things or in terms of what you thought needed to be out there in the public for folks to hear? Yeah, we, we did an episode, um, must've, it must've been like late last year on how Christians should vote. And it was one of the first Mm. ones that I did after my interview. And I just look back and I think like, that was such a gift to get to have that conversation, to be really honest about not just what was happening politically at the moment, but kind of taking a step back and thinking like, what are Christians supposed to be doing? Like, what are we doing when we yeah. get in the, the political mm-hmm. sphere? Um, which isn't something, the book that I wrote, I was trying to not get too much into, you should vote, or like, here's how we should think about things that are happening. Um, but so it was nice to then take some of those things that I really care about and bring it into really trying to work through before people actually do vote. Like, are there mm-hmm. helpful mm-hmm. things that we can say and advice we can give? And the other, the other thing that comes to mind I just did an interview with Kate Bowler, which was so lovely. And she said something in the interview about how she kind of had this mentality and she thinks other people have this mentality of imagining our lives. She's talking right about suffering and how we think about what it means to be a person that suffers and doesn't kind of have a neat bow at the end that kind of ties up the story. And she was describing how she has this mindset of, you know, I'm the protagonist in a little parable. (laughs) And, you know, so the protagonist might go through some difficult things, but at the end, she learns the things she needs to learn. The story gets kind of tied up. It's totally fine. And all of the stuff that she went through was worth it because it's a parable. So of course it explains, it gives you a lesson that kind of ties things up. And she's like, that's not how my life has been. That's not how scripture describes people's lives or people's suffering. And it was really helpful, not only to give me some language for my own life, to not feel the need to justify suffering as if it all has to kind of fit into this like Mm -hmm. cosmic math, but also it gave me some language for thinking about what to do and say with people who are suffering, which is so difficult to know how to just be with someone and comfort someone. And to go in and not be trying to find a way, because there is something in my head, I think, for a lot of us, 
that just resorts to that, especially Christians of kind of, we might keep from saying it, but we are sort of thinking like, how can I make it better that you went through this? Sure. Instead of just thinking, no, it's just terrible that you went through this. I don't yeah. have to try and justify it or make it fit in God's plan for your life or try to, I can just be here. I don't have to be Job's friends. I can just be sure. here in your suffering and, and that be a real gift to you. And that was sure. thinking about it with that language was really helpful. Yeah. Well, since you mentioned the Kate Bowler interview, I just listened, I finished listening to that yesterday, actually. And I really appreciated the interaction you had with her at the front end of your mm -hmm. interview, where you commented on your deep appreciation for her academic work on one hand, but also that she was accessible to these more significant issues that are going mm -hmm. on in life. And you made a comment about how women academics, um, maybe more so even Christian women academics have to, and you use the phrase pick a lane about, mm -hmm. you know, where to sort of work and live and that you appreciated the fact that Kate could be one kind of person that she could bring her whole self into what she's doing, what she's mm -hmm. saying, you know, the academic self, the mom self, the person with cancer self, she's bringing all yeah. of those things. Yeah. And, you know, you know, our primary audience is women in the academic space. And so the, the, this is, this is just a really important conversation um, to have, I think. And so I'm wondering, are there women besides Kate Bowler that have modeled this for you that you've seen mm -hmm. that and then any other comments that you want to make on this whole pick a lane yeah. challenge <laughs> <laughs> yeah it was pretty perfect timing to get to talk to her about it because as I'm starting a program and I'm really realizing the pressure that there kind of is especially in a, in a place like Duke to solely be an academic and to not bring life experiences sometimes into things, but especially as someone who wants to keep publishing more popularly and really cares about making resources that are accessible for the church, realizing how much tension there can be between doing both of those things mm -hmm. and how mm -hmm. people can have negative <laughs> reactions to doing both of those sure. things. And so it's been really, it was kind of lovely that just as I was starting to realize, oh, this is going to be a tricky thing for my life. Like it's going, you know, I, I don't, there's no part of me that thinks, oh, I should pick a lane. <laughs> I'm fully committed to kind of doing both of those things as much as I'm able to, and God provides opportunities. And yet I'm realizing that will be really difficult. And it was so lovely. I'll tell you after we finished recording the interview, she had, her team is so prepared. They had a whole sheet of information about me, like biographic details and whatever. And she looks down at it. I'd never met her before this. She looks down at the list and looks up at me and says, you know, the people you love and you're trying to do what you need to do for the people you love. And it was such a beautiful description to me yeah. of you really have a sense of calling to a certain group of people and you want to bring your academic learning for them. And you don't want to just, it wouldn't be wrong for you to just write popular stuff and not also be an academic, but you feel a calling in both of these areas. And yet you're not abandoning the people that you mm -hmm. love. You really feel called to them. And it was so helpful to hear her say it and say it that way. And to just look at very little details of my life and yet say kind of exactly what I <laughs> want to do. And I'm interested in it was really affirming. And she's really been, been a model of that for me. Another, another person that I think of Someone who's here, Lauren Winner, does also very similar, writes really beautifully and accessibly for people, but remarkably accessible. I think there are people who would be surprised that they could use it. And another person who's here, um, my friend uh, Sharon Hottie Miller, um, did a PhD at TEDS years ago, and she pastors a church with her husband here in Durham and brings the full weight of her academic knowledge and interest and expertise into writing really accessible books for people in the church, ministering really well to lots of people, but sometimes very especially to women. And similarly has been someone I've gone to, to go, I feel like there's pressure to pick a lane. And yet I don't want to, I don't want to either just feel mm -hmm. like I have to only do one thing, but I also don't want to feel like I have to pick an identity <laughs> that then is the singular identity I go around being like, sure. sure, I can do some popular stuff, but I'm doing it as an academic. I'm not doing it as a church going person or as 
a single woman in this part of the country or as like, I have to just be this identity. And so it's been lovely to learn from her who she's like, she's a pastor. She's got this academic training. She's a mom. And it's not pick one identity to sort of speak Mm -hmm. at, especially like you said, for Christian women, sometimes it's valuable in certain spaces for women to kind of go, I'm the wife and the mom. And that actually gives me some authority in this space, but I have to stick to that identity. I'm not these other things. And I just, I think the more that we can celebrate women doing different things, but also just not put pressure on them to kind of define themselves in a narrow way and not Mm -hmm. operate outside Mm -hmm. of that is so important because someone like Dr. Bowler doing incredible academic work, doing incredible popular work, but also took a moment with a new student to be kind and affirming and very relational and emotionally in tuned. And I want people like that writing things and teaching people. I don't want people who kind of go, okay, well, I did the interview and I'm not, you know, I'm not the same person in all these spaces. I, I, it meant the world to me that she was her full self with me all of the time. Yeah. We could, I think, talk about this for quite a while, but (laughs) I think especially in the academic arena, there is this kind of reduction to people as brains on legs. Yeah. And I guess I would say in this understanding of the incompatibility between your academic self and these, you know, if you're really serious, that kind of, you know, that sort of language. And I wonder if one of the gifts that women have to bring into the academic space is that Mm. they actually do juggle a lot of things and they have complex lives. And in some ways, I think it could humanize academia Mm. Mm. (laughs) uh, if women were actually allowed to be their full selves. I really do believe it could be a gift that women bring into the academic space. Um, Yeah. Lord willing, there'll be room for that more and more. Yeah, but. yeah. So I have another question for you. You are, uh, you've written a book and you've got some degrees under your belt, working on this new one, right? You've got this thing you've got going with the Holy Post and you've done a fair amount of other writing and commenting here and there. You've got a decent following on Twitter, people wanting to hear what you think and say. So how does that mess with your heart and your mind? And what sort of, to get back to spiritual formation language, what yeah. sort of practices and habits do you find yourself engaging in in order to maybe push against some of the ways in which this could mess with your heart and your mind? Yeah, I I really appreciate that question because... I do feel like it's only been in the last six months, maybe that I have started to notice ways. I think maybe it's because I'm in a new place. And so I'm meeting a lot of new people for the first time. And this is the first time in my life that I've moved to a new place and a not insignificant number of people that I meet already know who I am (laughs) and like no weird details about me because I shared them (laughs) on the internet, you know, Um, that's just a weird, you know, the first time I visited a church here, that's now the church I'm attending very first day, two different people at different points went, Oh my goodness. Like, are you Caitlin Chess? I know you from the internet, you know, (laughs) and other people who don't know that are looking at them like, how, what, that's so weird, you know? So I've been thinking about it more recently than ever before in my life. Um, in part because of the Holy post as well, which just has a massive audience. One of the things I've realized in the last few months is one, the importance of having relationships with people in my real life here who are not really online at all. (laughs) And who really just like, don't, don't know anything about what's happening. Don't care at all about what's happening, both in terms of like knowing details about me that I share on the internet, but also not even knowing what the big fight that's happening right now is or knowing what Twitter is blowing up about. Like, it's so great for me. I had dinner with two of the women in my cohort last night, neither of whom know anything about what's happening on Christian Twitter. And it's so lovely for me to be like, do you know what's, and to have it be relativized, you know, for me, it's this important thing. And then their reactions remind me for most people in the world, it is not a big thing. (laughs) You know, it's not a huge deal. So that's been really, been really huge. And two, kind of just learning what it means to moderate my own intake in a way that's healthy and also to kind of moderate my sharing 
-hmm. I think Mm -hmm. I had such a period of time where I was just such an open book and had a philosophy of just, and I do think there's something really important. Beth Moore has taught me this of being occasionally silly and humanizing yourself on the internet because fight can get so intense. And I love that people can just remind us that they're real humans. Mm-hmm. But the other end of that is desire to, to, to keep certain things private in a way that I'm learning is not only healthy for other relationships I have in real life, <laughs> that there mm-hmm. are people in my mm-hmm. real life that know things that people on the internet don't know, but for even myself, that it doesn't feel like everyone just knows everything. And, you know, I had a friend uh, back in Dallas who someone was visiting her from out of town who loved Matt Chandler, pastor of this, you know, big church outside of Dallas. And they went to the church to visit it because this friend was like, so she listens to the podcast. She knows everything about Matt Chandler. She's read all his books and they were having a conversation. They they actually got to meet him after the service, which they didn't think was going to happen, had a conversation with him. And he mentioned offhand some details about his life but he didn't feel the need to like actually tell them the details. He just sort of referenced them because he assumed they would know the details. Oh, right. And that's not unreasonable, right? He's like a very public figure. He was introduced to this person who said, I know every, you know, I love you. I listen to all your stuff. And this other friend though, who doesn't know anything about him, who was just there along for the ride was like, that's got to be strange for him as a person. Like, could there be Mm -hmm. something sort of unhealthy, not of his own fault? I mean, it's the reality that he lives in, but could there be something unhealthy about not even needing to introduce yourself to people or explain your life because it's so out there. And that's been a helpful, when I have felt myself doing that, like meeting someone who says, oh, I follow you on Twitter. And then I don't feel the need to fill them in on details about my life. When I feel that in myself, that's when I'm like, okay, we need to get offline for a few days. We need to go hang out with some people who don't know about the internet, you know, because I do think there's something, there's a narcissism that can happen, but also more than that, I think there's just a sense of constantly being on <laughs> like mm-hmm. yeah, how am I presenting right. myself is the number one thing a hundred percent of the time and I don't I also if anyone knows anything about the Enneagram I'm a three on the Enneagram which is very like you know presentation really matters and I want to shape myself to what other people want and so I've become increasingly conscious of I need to cultivate the inner life of a person who knows who I am when no one is watching mm-hmm. and I, I can't do that if I'm constantly putting everything online and then being around people who just know everything, not because I chose to share it with them, but because it's just online. Yeah, that's helpful. Well, I mentioned earlier that most of our audience is women in the academic space. Many of them are making their way through graduate school, like you are in various programs. So what encouragement, just as a sort of a last question, right? What encouragement, challenge, advice would you give to these women who, who see their work as a calling from God and who want it and all their other callings to count for Jesus and his kingdom? Hmm. Yeah, I think the first thing that comes to mind is as someone who's already been a graduate student for five years and is now going to continue to be a graduate student for a long time, it's been so easy this whole time. And I have felt it even more now to just feel like my whole life is sort of in waiting while I'm a student. And there's something that's like true about that in that I'm not doing the thing I'm being trained to do. But the, the dangerous thing about that is not kind of putting roots in a place, kind of obvious Mm -hmm. things, but it's also, I think just not recognizing the inherent goodness of the work that I'm doing for the kingdom. Now I was Mm -hmm. researching, you know, in the library yesterday afternoon. And then I went to an event at church that evening and had a conversation with someone that ended up kind of looping in some stuff. I had been reading, they had some questions. I, and it was such a small little moment. It's not like I changed their life or anything, but I realized later, am I in tune to the opportunities I have to be presently shaped and also still sharing what I'm doing now without feeling like everything is just working towards something in the future. And that's been a helpful reorientation for me of going, how can I be open-handed with the things I have now? How can I be constantly oriented outwards towards my community? And also how can I just recognize, like I said earlier, the, the inherent goodness of contemplating God shaping me now and giving that to other people. And the other thing I would say to people who are in graduate school or people who are in academia in general, I I said this earlier, but 
I have just been so struck over the last year when I was doing applications and then now being welcomed by people here at the school of just what a gift it is <laughs> to give those kinds of things to people. And I've been storing up like a list on my phone of different actions people have done towards me mm -hmm. because I want to spend time dwelling on them both to thank God and to remember to thank those people, but also so that I have kind of a repertoire in my head of helpful things that I sure. can pass on to other people. I mean, there was a woman when I was applying to programs who was on Zoom with me for four hours, sent me all of this material that she used in her applications, talked me through like how to email professors and what to, you know, and I look back and I'm, I think I don't ever want to get to a place where that kind of work just seems like completely beneath me, <laughs> you know, like mm -hmm. I don't have time for sure. that, you know? So there've been a handful of people this year who, who've reached out and gone, I'm applying this year. Do you have any advice? And just kind of wanting to be in a rhythm of my life where my thankfulness takes the form of, of giving to other people what I have received as well. As you were talking, I thought that's sort of the equivalent of the casserole, yeah. right? <laughs> and so sort of the, what, what do people need it? And what do I, what do I have to give and how can I help welcome and care for folks? So that's yeah. lovely. Well, Caitlin, thank you so much for taking you. time out of your studies and all the other things you have going on to talk with us. It's been lovely and trust that you will continue to be blessed and be a blessing in the places mm -hmm. where the, the Lord has you. I love your thoughtfulness around this idea that what I'm doing now matters and to be attuned to the way in which the spirit would um, mm. lead and direct you to invest in people and learning and situation because because the now matters not just yeah not just the future thank you thank you so much I really thank you appreciate it I'm so pleased that we got to listen into that lovely talk with Caitlin and Karen I really appreciated Caitlin's reflections on the generosity of others in her life and her wish to follow in suit. It's inspiring. And I'm grateful for you, our listeners, and your generosity in sharing your time with us by listening to this podcast. All Shall Be Well is hosted by me, Anne Boyd, and is a production of InterVarsity's Women in the Academy and Professions. We acknowledge that the opinions of our guests may not necessarily represent the ministry, doctrine, or policies of InterVarsity. You can find more information about our podcast and the other cool things we are doing at thewell.intervarsity.org. Our work is funded solely through the donations of our listeners and supporters, so if you enjoyed this podcast, you might consider joining our support team by donating even 5 or $10 per month. You can find out how to do this at give to iv.org slash the well or through our donation link at the well and as we close let me read a little excerpt from caitlin's book our lived theology has political consequences examining the political implications of our practices isn't about shifting the focus away from god our worship corporate or individually glorifies him above all else and he has made it abundantly clear that the way we treat other people is a big part of how he views our worship.